0: Father God, would you please now speak through your word, speak to our minds and to our hearts and show us the Lord Jesus. Amen. I um, hope you've got a a little uh, uh, sheet of paper with uh, a summary of the talk. Uh, Members of the choir are being given one now uh, so you can see where I'm going and how long you've got to put up with things. We're looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. In the Red Bibles, it's uh, page uh, 1013. It begins there. They are difficult verses. Jesus is teaching the disciples in Capernaum. The whole section, which begins in verse 33, which we looked at last week, The disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And they end with Jesus urging them, be at peace with each other. And in the verses we're looking at today, Jesus challenges three things. Firstly, he challenges a closed Christianity. The disciples see a man who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus But he was not one of the twelve or one of the people who was part of Jesus in group. So they tell him to stop. But Jesus rebukes his followers. He says to them, don't stop him. If he drives out demons in my name today, he won't say bad stuff about me tomorrow. If he's not against us, he's for us. In fact, says Jesus, it doesn't even need to be as dramatic as driving out demons. In the next verse, he says it could be as simple as giving somebody a glass of water because, he says, somebody giving you a glass of water because you bear the the name of Jesus. They won't lose their reward. It's very easy, whether it's in the face of hostility, insecurity or suffering, for us as Christians to retreat into our castles and to close the doors. You've got a picture there of a castle or a tower that we saw when we were in Ireland a few weeks ago. It is a real Rapunzel Tower. The door is 20 feet off the ground. If you want to get there, you've got to get a ladder down from there so that you can get into this tower. And it just goes straight up, and there is the little Rapunzel window at the top. But Jesus challenges us when we're tempted to run into our towers. He's just called us in the previous verse, verse 37, to be people who welcome little children in his name. In other words, to welcome those who have no status, no significance in society who welcome those on the edge in his name. He invites us to come out of our castles with all their sense of security and exchange them for tents with all their sense of vulnerability. Travellers, refugees and people on the edge live in tents. Michael, who's out there, lives in a tent. It's actually where people who follow Jesus ought to be. Jesus was born in a cowshed, was a refugee in Egypt, became a homeless itinerant preacher, and ended up dying the death of a slave. (coughs) The first Christians were nobodies. They were made up of people who, 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 in the eyes of society, were despised Gentiles, women, and slaves. Rosemary Morris will tell us that the church in India is growing at an astonishing rate, particularly among the Dalit people, people who are considered untouchable by the rest of society. And I wonder if the church today is being marginalised in our own society, pushed to the edge, so that we're actually forced to come out of our castles, live in tents, and learn again to work with those on the edge. And to love the marginalised. One of the real joys about being part of the wider family of God. Here in Bury St Edmunds. Is to see how Christians from across the town. From many different churches. Come to work together for the marginalised. I think of C.CAP. Christians Against Poverty. Of the town Pastors. And now buried Drop-In, which has just been set up to work with the homeless. I think of our own sometimes on Sunday, which a number of you I know are involved with, working with those with learning disabilities. It's an astonishing rainbow of people who call on the name of Jesus and who welcome those on the edge and each other in the name of Jesus. And when we live in tents and when we work with those on the margins, we will rub shoulders with people like this unauthorized exorcist in verse 38. People who are doing good stuff in the name of Jesus. But maybe you've got a lot of stuff wrong. Now don't get me wrong, truth matters. And the church needs to guard that truth against error. But it does seem that Jesus is calling us here to a deep generosity to welcome those who do what is good in the name of Jesus, even if they've got so much else wrong. Some of the churches we saw in the Diocese of Keteto, Tanzania, consisted of very simple buildings with, no, with roofs, but no walls. The problem with a church like that is anybody can walk in and walk out. You don't know who's in or who's out, but maybe that's not really our job. Maybe our job is simply to stand on the edge, to stand in the doors, and to welcome everyone who would come to be a follower of Jesus. So Jesus challenges a closed Christianity. Secondly, Jesus challenges a complacent Christianity, verses 42 to 48. And this is where it gets really hard. If you cause one of these little ones to sin, Jesus says, it's better for you to be drowned. It's better to be dead than to go to hell. I think there is a connection with what he's just said. The reference is not actually causing to one of these little ones, meaning the children who we've been mentioned a bit earlier on, but these little ones who believe in me to sin. It's more likely Jesus is speaking about people like the unauthorized exorcist, the man driving out demons in verse 38. People who are new in faith. People who are sympathetic but ignorant in faith. People who are clueless but on the edge of faith. And we cause them to sin when we shut the door on them. When we reject them because they don't do things the way we do them. We cause them to sin when we put, expect them to jump through hoops, when we put so many requirements on them that they're crushed by the regulations and rules, by what they feel they ought to believe and how they ought to behave. We cause them to sin when we do not feed them or seek to grow them and do not teach them about the grace and purpose and power of God when we do not teach them about our crucified and risen Lord Jesus. I love this church. You know, at one end, we have the image of Jesus crucified on the cross above the door. At the other end, we have the empty cross, the symbol of the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection. Jesus, in verse 39, is aware that it's not just about what this man does today. It's about what he might become tomorrow and we need to think about the future and we need to give people space to fail and we need to give people therefore space to grow. A person is not going to become perfect overnight because they pray a prayer of commitment. And in verses 42 to 48 he uses, uses astonishingly stark language about sin. This is no game. God hates it when we cause a young believer to stumble. God hates arrogance and hatred and the way we judge others in order to justify ourselves or our particular lifestyle. He hates it when we crush, belittle or humiliate another person. He hates our rebellion and pride. We think we can live without him. that means that we replace him with ourselves or career or sex or money or family. We make ourselves little gods and treat everyone else as if they're our servants. And so he says we're to hate that which causes sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. The hand which threatens, hits, steals, writes falsehood or bile, which points, then we need to cut it off. If it's our foot which causes us to sin, the foot which stamps on another, walks over another, takes us to places which shame God, shame us and shame others, cut it off. If it's our eye which causes us to sin, the eye which envies, lusts after or rejects another simply because of what they look like on the outside, or the eye which is so blinded by self that it doesn't see the other, gouge it out, says Jesus. It's better to be without a hand or without a foot or without an eye than to go into hell. I hasten to add that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's not commending that we literally cut our body parts off. The Old Testament and the Christian church has always rejected self-mutilation. One chap, Origen, did read these verses and he went and castrated himself. And as a result, the church did not permit him to receive communion until he had repented of his action. And certainly the early church never said, as in Sharia law, or as in our own legal system in the past, that those who steal should have their hands cut off. To be honest, if we did take Jesus' advice literally, we would all be in a pretty sorry state. But this idea of cutting things off is not just a dramatic figure of speech, Jesus is also saying something very practical. If looking at a particular website leads us into sin, cut it out. If playing a game on the PlayStation means that we're not even actually giving a few minutes of prayer to prayer, or we're not doing some of the other things we ought to be doing, cut it out. Rem- delete it. Delete the game for a time from, from the memory. If we know that when we get angry, we hit out, whether physically or or verbally, note the warning signs and take steps to stop ourselves getting there. If going somewhere or talking with someone causes us to sin, stop going there. Jesus is saying that sin is a desperate matter. The consequence of sin is the eternal judgment of God. This is no joke. There's no place for complacency. Thirdly, Jesus challenges comfortable Christianity. Comfortable Christians live in their castles with the drawbridge pulled up, feeling safe, with a warm fire burning and servants running round, surrounded like people like ourselves. Comfortable Christians do what we can to avoid inconvenience, let alone suffering. But having spoken about how desperate sin is, Jesus continues, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And I think what Jesus is saying, I have to say, all the commentaries disagree on on what this verse means, but they all do agree that these are the two hardest verses in Mark's gospel to understand. But what I think that Jesus is saying is that if we're faithful, we will be salted with fire. We will go through times of fire. And that those times are not to be avoided, but to be welcomed. They're to be welcomed because they're something that will transform us and shape us. So that they'll help us get rid of the sin. So that we become salt, agents of God's mercy and love. So although we dread the fire, when it comes, we can welcome it as something which can transform it and transform us, help us to come closer to Jesus. So I think we should welcome the hostility of society. The community Mark was writing to was suffering dreadful persecution. It's a fire that God can use to purify us and move us out of our castles into tents. Welcome suffering. Suffering can often drive us to our knees. It helps us recognize our human frailty and our need for God and the fact that this is not our life, but our real future life is there with him. There's a story told about the monk who lived in the desert who always used to get a cold in the autumn. One autumn, he didn't get a cold. So he prayed, God, why have you abandoned me this year? Welcome the discipline that comes with the Christian faith. The discipline of daily prayer and Bible reading. Of coming to worship on Sunday, even when you don't feel like it. Of giving, of occasional fasting. Of praise, praising God when praise is the last thing we want to do. Welcome the discipline of obedience. Maybe the time when we need to move out of our comfort zone or when we need to say sorry to someone or when we need to cut something off or when we need to welcome someone who we really struggle with. Welcome the fire of reproof. It can sting when people rebuke us, especially if it's not done in the spirit of love or generosity but God can still use it to transform us. And welcome the discipline of confession. This is not something that I speak about that much. Um, Confession is one of the ways of dealing with our sin. There's a real purifying of our inner being when we confess our sin to someone else. It's something that we need It means we have to recognize that it is sin. We need to recognize that we have to confront it and that we can't blame anybody else for it. We need to own just how desperate our own sin is. And that hurts. But if we confess our sin before someone who knows their own sin, And who knows the love and mercy of God. And who can declare to us what Jesus has done, how he has died, so that we can be forgiven. It can be incredibly healing and liberating. And as we repent of our sin and discover how much God forgives us, so we become salt. Jesus talks elsewhere about Christians being salt in the world in the sense that we can transform society. We come out of our castles and we welcome others. We're not blind. We do see their sins and their faults. We're very, very human. But we also see that their sins are foothills in comparison to the Himalayas of our own sin. When we listen to Jesus' challenge against a closed Christianity, when we refuse to be complacent about our own sin, and when we allow God to transform us through the fire of persecution, suffering, and Christian discipline, then we will be people who are not obsessed about our own status. Remember, this whole passage begins with them arguing about who is the greatest We will welcome one another, even the least, and even the really dodgy ones, and we will live at peace with one another. Oh, Father God, would you give us that graciousness to reject a complacent, a closed uh, Christianity. Would you help us to be open to you, And would you help us to live at peace with one another? In Jesus' name. Amen.